everybody and welcome to exploring the lord of the ring now broadcasting on the correct channel instead of the incorrect channel which i was just broadcasting on a minute ago all right we're now ready really and officially and totally to start our broadcast today <laughs> glad to be back with you exactly Rowan. you get two opening intros for the price of one that's exactly what is happening here thanks everybody for joining us as I was actually already explaining, except in the completely wrong place, um, the uh, a few announcements today. Our first announcement is that our moots that are coming up. We have Tex moot coming up in just over two weeks, and Orlando moot or Sunshine moot coming up in Orlando, Florida. Um, so we're going to Austin, Texas, and Orlando, Florida. Austin, Texas, on the 26th of March, and Orlando, Florida, on the 2nd of April. Those two are coming up. You can go to signumuniversity.org/events and find both of those. You can register. You can attend uh, in person, or you can attend digitally to either or. Both both of those, no matter where you are. Um, so, uh, uh, so there you go. I, uh, uh, I hope that I know that several of you are planning to, to join me. So that's a, a lot of fun. Looking forward to, uh, to meeting and seeing again, many of you uh, in both of those places. Uh, so that's going to be a great time. All right. Now, I was just starting to get to my second uh, announcement, which is about our space program. Signum portals for adult continuing education are awesome modules. And I was telling you about the awesomeness that is happening there because we've had more and more people joining our space program, which means we've had the opportunity to run more and more cool classes. So if you look at the our one-month space modules, which are running, oh, and like we have a new uh, a scheduling system uh, called our new software platform called BlackBerry, named after the very clever rabbit, of course. Uh, and um, anyway, so BlackBerry takes care of, is going to be taking care of everything now because BlackBerry is really smart. So we have 10 modules um, that are, uh, 10 modules that are confirmed for April by far the largest number we have had yet. Uh, and it is really awesome. We've got our bridge to the Silmarillion. So for folks who have, if you've been a Tolkien fan, you've tried to read, to read the Silmarillion and you've been, you've had a hard time getting into it. No shame in that. It's, it happens to everybody, right? It's a very difficult transition. We have a whole space module designed to help to build that bridge to the Silmarillion from the Lord of the Rings to the Silmarillion with James Tauber and Elise Trudell. Um, that's going to be awesome. And um, we have we have a module on uh, reading C.S. Lewis's Ransom Cycle, which is going to we have a module on the history of anime, conversational Spanish, Old Norse one. You want to learn Old Norse? This is a great place to learn Old Norse. And then coming up in May, we have even more cool stuff coming up, like, for instance, Klingon. We're offering a Klingon module. Klingon 1. You can start learning Klingon with David Tremblay uh, uh, in May. Um, we've got... Um, uh, we've got uh, a module on the anime Full Metal Alchemist. We've got a module on uh, Pity in the Lord of the Rings. We've got biological concepts in fantasy and science fiction. This is a biology professor teaching about biological concepts as they're represented in fantasy and science fiction. Lots of really 
really fun stuff, um, as well as a lot of our other uh, things that we have uh, been running. We're starting a new cycle, uh, a new cohort through our Latin in a Year program, which has been really popular. We've got uh, have had a bunch of people who have been studying Latin with us. We're starting Greek uh, as well, so you can learn Greek. We've got... Um, uh, 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 creative writing workshop. So much going on in the space program. So signumuniversity.org slash space. I commend this to you so you can see how our space program works and what's going on. Now is an awesome time to get involved uh, in space. And the last thing that I wanted to mention is uh, that uh, I'm doing the second session of my Other Minds and Hands uh, uh, broadcast uh, tomorrow. So that's Wednesday uh, the 9th at 4 p.m. Um, our open and friendly discussion of Tolkien adaptation. I should be joined, hopefully, uh, by my co-host, who was prevented by an act of God last time, uh, but should be there with me this time. And we're going to have our first guest as well. So it's going to be a really fun discussion. Looking forward to, to sitting down, getting into some... We're going to be talking some uh, some uh, Tolkien Second Age lore and how you know some of the things that they will have had to make decisions about uh, in the Amazon show and talking about some of the implications of those decisions. We'll be talking about some more uh, concepts about um, uh, you know, adaptation and what it means and what to expect. Um, we're going to be... Uh, uh, I'm probably going to talk a little bit more. There's some clarifications I need to make about uh, Critfic that a lot of people are uh, we're still struggling with um, uh, from last time or misunderstanding uh, from last time. So we're, we'll, we'll, we'll talk some more about that stuff too. It's going to be a great time. Um, so I... Hope that you will join me tomorrow afternoon. So again, that's Wednesday the 9th at 4 p.m. Eastern time. And you just can tune in on our Twitch channel. Our, like Basically anywhere where this is currently broadcasting, we'll be broadcasting that tomorrow. Um, uh, so uh, anyway, that's uh, that's where we are. And yes, Matt, you're right. I, I, I was... Uh, um, it was fun to see the two, they did a two-part episode uh, on the Friendship Onion with Dominic Monaghan and Billy Boyd that I uh, was on. That was a, a lot of fun. Uh, many thanks to them for having me on the show. Um, those both recently dropped, and it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of fun to see. We had a great time uh, in those uh, in those episodes, and it was uh, it was neat to see that. So that was that was definitely that was definitely fun. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, so. Lots of fun stuff going on lately, and we'll um, we'll uh, uh, we'll we'll look forward to another great episode of Other Minds and Hands tomorrow afternoon. So you can join me for that. All right. Um, uh, <laughs> I was surprised at what a hard sell they were doing for the New Hampshire maple syrup <laughs> in that in that episode. I was like, okay, but yeah, that's. Um, but I I I have no longer have. Um, maple syrup on my desk, which I did for a little while after recording that episode to my hazard. So uh, uh, that's been that's been good. Anyway, um, uh, oh, yeah, did I? No, it was not a coincidence that we had the same brand of syrup. No, no, the uh, the that that was that was that was coordinated. Well, they told me what brand of syrup they were getting, and I was like, oh yeah, well I know, I, I of course they're getting. You know, they they got one that they could get on Amazon, um, and I knew that the, where they sold that you know, that's available at Whole Foods right down the road. So um, I just went and picked one up since they, I knew that they were getting that one. So I have to admit, like, 
it's my second favorite maple syrup because we have like a local sugar barn, you know, right in the next town over that I prefer to patronize. But, you know, it's okay. They're not available on Amazon, I don't think. So, you know, whatever. Um, but um, uh, anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so there we are. That's what's going on. Lots of things happening. Let us get back. Uh, let us get back to the text here. So um, we were in the middle of this. We had, we got as far as uh, uh, the description of the hobbits, as I recall. Um, I don't think we talked as much about Gandalf's description. So I'll read it from the start because it's been like weeks since we talked about this. Um, and then we'll talk. We'll look at uh, the description of Gandalf and then the rest of their clothes. Gimli the dwarf alone wore openly a short shirt of steel rings, for dwarves make light of burdens, and in his belt was a broad-bladed axe. Legolas had a bow and a quiver, and at his belt a long white knife. The, young, the younger hobbits wore the swords that they had taken from the barrow, but Frodo took only sting, and his mail coat, as Bilbo wished, remained hidden. Gandalf bore his staff, but girded his side was the elven sword Glamdring, the mate of Orcrist that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the lonely mountain. All were well furnished by Elrond, with thick, warm clothes, and they had jackets and cloaks lined with fur. Spare food and clothes and blankets and other needs were laden on a pony, none other than the poor beast that they had brought from Bree. Okay, um, so Gandalf's description. Gandalf bore his staff, but girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, the maid of Orcrist, that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the lonely mountain. So there are two things that jump out at me about that sentence. One, and the primary one, is that last clause, right? The mate of Orcris that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the lonely mountain. Um, on the one hand, that seems like a frankly unnecessary um, description in, uh, that is within a, in, a, in the Lord of the Rings context, right? I mean, um, that... Um, that's a reference that is not going to pay off at any time during the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, we're never going to need to know that glamdring. Like, it's never, you know, like it kind of, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, by pay, I mean, it almost sounds like one of those things like, ah, like, you know, sowing the seed for the fact that, like, I don't know what, Orcris is going to show up again later on and we're going to need to know that. No, it really doesn't, right? Yeah, fan service, Mad Violinist, exactly. That's kind of, that's kind of, seems to be it, right? Um, the choice that he's made here is to contextualize Gandalf's weaponry description to contextualize it from The Hobbit, basically, right? To, uh, to recall the fact, like, why does he have the elven sword Glamdring? So we're reminded that he has Glamdring. That's important. Gandalf has a sword. Right. That's 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 important. Um, exactly. Two juice man is saying Chekhov's sword. That's that's exactly the kind of thing I was thinking of when I was thinking about paying that off. Um, but um, so that Gandalf has a sword is going to be important. Right. But I don't think um, that this is necessarily just an ad for the for the Hobbit. Um, Lath Lorna Lath, I, I, I think. Um, but um Think about the context that we have. Um, uh, think about the context that we've seen, right? The context that we've. Uh, the parallels between Frodo's quest and Bilbo's quest. That's been a, a kind of a low key theme, 
um, really from uh, the shadows of the past, right? Um, and coming up again more regularly during the course of, of these chapters, these first three chapters of book two. Um, and um, yeah, yeah, I wonder, Matt says, could this be an indication that this is uh, being written by Bilbo, one of the scraps they will find on the floor when when they return? Uh, I, 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 that's a really fun touch, Matt. Um, there's no question that Bilbo as narrator would primarily think of Glamdring as the maid of Orcrist that now that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the Lonely Mountain. Um, uh, even, and I would say, Matt, that um, I would consider the tone of it rather to support that. Notice how he just refers to him as Thorin, right? Um, upon the breast of Thorin, under the Lonely Mountain. That's fairly casual for anybody else, I would think. Like, you know, Sam? Would Sam just, or, or Frodo, just call, you know, call Thorin Oakenshield? He wouldn't say Thorin Oakenshield. Wouldn't be like, you know, Thorin, King Under the Mountain, or whatever. Just be like, you know, Thorin. You know, Thorin. It's like a first name basis, right? Now I know he kind of only has one name. Oakenshield isn't his last name exactly, right? I know that, but um, uh, but it, it does feel pretty informal, right? It feels kind of first name basis-ish, right? Um, but um, yeah. Oh, that's an interesting notion, Chris. Um, that uh, yeah, Chris says he has this notion that Glamdring was stored at Rivendell and given back to him for the journey. Saruman might have dispossessed Gandalf of such a fine blade were he wearing it when captured. Yes, not to mention the fact that I'm not sure that I believe that Gandalf would carry his sword at all times, right? I mean, look, when you're a wandering wizard, people are going to give you funny looks, even if you're not wearing a weapon, which I can't imagine that wearing a sword is perfectly normal. I mean, certainly in the Shire, not perfectly normal, right? Even in Bree, I can't imagine that most Brelanders are walking around with swords on their hips, necessarily, right? I mean, I know that, uh, you know, kind of role-playing games have kind of uh, uh, desensitized us to this kind of thing, but, like, walking around with a sword is, I mean, kind of aggressive, Um yeah, Aragorn's sword was hidden under his cloak. Right, exactly. And of course, it's not much good anyway, as it turned out. But, you know, you couldn't tell that from the outside. Um, and, um, yeah, so it's... I, I, And, you know, would Gandalf... Thinking about the kind of role that Gandalf plays, um, you know, and even, um, you know, Chris thinking about Aragorn and his hidden sword. Aragorn in his Strider persona, carrying a sword. That kind of works, you know? I mean, he's supposed to look kind of shady and dangerous, right? That's, like, that's his persona. Um, so, yeah, he's one of those folk that we're not really quite sure about who comes in out of the wild, right? Um, and he's wearing a sword. Like, that's, you know... It's not like it's, uh, you know, uh, front page news material necessarily. Um, but I doubt that it's normal for folks in Brie to care. I mean, they don't even lock their doors at night, we're told. 
um, well, no, sorry. We're told that in the we're told that in the in the Shire in the uh, in Buckland they don't lock their doors. Um, maybe they do in Bree. Things are a little more dangerous out there, but still, I, they, it's just I don't. I, I'd be very surprised if there were that kind of. Um, yeah, they do. They do in Buckland. Yeah, they do in Buckland on the other side of the, you know, too near the uh, too near the forest. Um, but um, anyway, yeah. So. Um, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was remembering, JJ. So anyway, point is, I don't think that Gandalf, especially going into the Shire and everything, it's just, yes, he's had Glamdring. So Chris, I like your theory. I like your theory that um, he has left Glamdring um, in Rivendell, not only because, um, uh, not only because he is, doesn't need to pack it, everywhere he goes. You know, he doesn't need to carry a sword with him all the time. But also, remember, remember, that's a, that was Turgon's sword. Right? That he's, you know, kind of polite for him to leave it with Elrond, maybe? You know, uh, his what? Um, Great-grandpa? Right? Um, Yeah, great- great-grandfather, right? No. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because Idril is his grandma. Right, yeah. Great-grandfather. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, we're, we're talking about his great-grandfather's sword, right? It's, it's, would be polite, you know, for, it would, would make all kinds of sense for him to, uh, uh, to, to leave it there. Um, and, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I can easily see that, and you're certainly right, Chris. Um, I can't imagine that, although that Gandalf was not, um, would not have been divested of his ancient elvish sword uh, by Saruman in Isengard, um, had he had it with him at the time. Um, but um, anyway, so. I can uh, I can see the significance there um, of mentioning how it was girded his side. It might not have been before. Um, I wonder. And actually, this brings around a different a different level there. If Gandalf did not have Glendring with him most of the time before, as certainly makes sense, um, Frodo might never have seen it. Before, yeah, Ered, you were just thinking exactly the same thing. Um, uh, Frodo might never have seen Glamdring, um, so him seeing Glamdring, the sword that Gandalf is wearing, could inspire Frodo to write the rest of that sentence too. In a bit, in a moment of nostalgia, kind of like when he met Glowen at the dinner party, right? Are you the Glowen, right? That he's looking at Gandalf girt with Glamdring, and he's like, "Is that?" the Glamdring, the maid of Orcrist that now lay upon the breast of Thorin under the Lonely Mountain? Um, or like when he met Elrond exactly, Valoria. I mean, I think that that's, um, um, I think that that's a, a, it's very plausible. That would fit. That would fit a Frodo as narrator moment. Still seems a little casual to me. 
Thorin, on, on the breast of Thorin under the Lonely Mountain. Though, again, I could just see Frodo doing that if he's kind of, you know, kind of channeling Bilbo or, or sort of repeating, uh, almost like half-quoting from, you know, some of Bilbo's old stories or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and Gilgalady, I agree. That, um, that word... Oh, man. You know what, Ray? That's, I never thought of that. I never thought of that, but you're totally right. Ray says, uh, Glorfindel biting his tongue every time they bring up, bring up glam drink. Uh, yeah, well, Glorfindel would know it, wouldn't he? Right? Uh, I mean, when you're imagining Glorfindel looking at glam drink and being like, it's too soon, man. It's too soon, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So for those of you who don't remember, of course, Glorfindel was like one of the great captains of Turgon, um, who would have seen Turgon wielding glam during many times, right? Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, 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 he would have the closest connection to it, the most vivid memories of it, um, of, uh, of anybody. Um, yeah, yeah, but, um, <laughs> Ray says, what if Orchrist was Gorfindel's sword? Talk about awkward. Yeah, I doubt it. I doubt it. But, uh, but Ray, you know, it's 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 interesting to imagine. Of course, we don't get any reference to Glorfindel in The Hobbit, right? Um, but it would have been interesting to imagine Glorfindel being there as he would have been, right? Um, when they show up and Elrond identifies the swords, glancing over at Glorfindel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, that's um, yeah. In uh, in 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 my head. Um, Orchrist is uh, Ichthelion's green great dragon. Yeah, always always has been in my head. Uh, 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 Ichthelion's sword. Yeah, that's uh, I think always been my always been my deal. Uh, but you know, we'll see. But um, anyway, uh, I was coming back to the point made by who was talking about the somebody's making. Oh yeah, uh, Gilgalady. Um, Gandalf bore his staff, but girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring. Um, the use of that verb or uh, past participle, technically, girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring. Um, th the word girt there, right? Um, uh, that does seem very sort of more formal, right? Um, Gandalf bore his staff, which is not a big deal. Gandalf's always bearing his staff, right? Um, after all, that's what his name means, right? Like a uh, 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 dude carrying staff. So yes, it's the Gand part uh, of, uh, of of his name. So yeah, Gandalf bore his staff, and that's a surprise to no one. But girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, um, and uh, there is again there is something uh, sort of formal formal to that. He's he is going off. Gandalf is going off to war. Right. I mean, he is headed towards this is going to be his last test. Um, I wonder, you know, we've talked about the gray and the white and the what seems to have been involved in the role of the white. If we're if we're correct in our previous theories about what that meant uh, from the conversation with Saruman and that the white wizard is the one who is the captain, um, you know, the one who is supposed to be leading the opposition against Sauron. Um, Gandalf has sort of informally taken that up already, 
right? And so him going with the sword, uh, girt with a sword, um, he, this is not a normal journey for Gandalf, I think. Um, and I think it's, it seems to me like a, like a big deal, um, that he is going girt with this sword. He is going to war. He is, he is heading off, not just as an accompaniment of a, of the quest of the ring, but he is setting off. And you think about upon Frodo and Sam only is laid the particular quest, right? Everybody else are to be their companions. Gimli and Legolas are just supposed to go as far as the paths of the mountains, right? Because they're kind of vaguely going east-ish, right? So they can go, they can take a dog leg a little south on their way to the east, right? Um, Aragorn and Boromir are headed to Minas Tirith, which is very much on the way, right? So they'll be with them for a long time. Um, but remember, there's, there's not, the company of the ring um, is not all of them bound. They're not all setting off on this journey. Uh, the, I mean, on the journey to Mount Doom, that is. Um, Gandalf. Is Gandalf um, uh, setting off on the journey to Mount Doom? That's not obvious to me. It's not obvious to me. And, uh, I, you know, I wonder. He could be, right? Um, uh, he... He did, yeah, ex exactly, Matt. Gandalf is, 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 he's been named interim white wizard. That's exactly it. He's, he's the interim white wizard. Maybe someday, Matt, they'll promote him to full white wizard. I think it's possible, but you know, it might not happen for a while. Uh, who knows, who knows what he's going to have to go through to earn the final promotion, uh, from interim to, to full uh, to full. Yeah, no, I think, I think he's, I don't, I think he's past adjunct white wizard. Um, he's been operating as like ad hoc white wizard. Right. Um, but, um, uh, but I think now that, you know, Saruman's treachery has been revealed, I think he's officially interim now and may get the full position. Will we know get the full position, but he is going to have to go through some, uh, some, some, some stuff. So yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, but, um, yeah. But let's... One more thing, though. The connection to the Hobbit is one thing. But it doesn't have to be as funereal as this. The mate of Orchrist that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the Lonely Mountain. There were a lot of ways that we could have recalled Orchrist, assuming that we wanted to recall that connection and to, to, to recall... The Hobbit and the kind of the, the the continuity of that quest to this and the parallels of the two quests and which we've seen before being used in a rather hopeful way, right? Maybe the, you know it's another there and back again deal here, right? Um, once again, setting off on a quest for a mountain and coming back home again, right? Maybe not exact, maybe not unchanged, but uh, you know everybody more or less intact, um, mostly. But anyway. That's not only what's going on here, right? Like, we don't... He could have recalled it, Orchrist, the Hobbit quest, without recalling Thorin's death, without, like, alluding to Thorin's corpse, which he does, right? Upon the breast... Cecilia, I saw your comments, like, really upon the skeleton of Thorin at this point. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Um, that's kind of what we're reminded of here, 
right? Um, and yeah, I agree that it um, uh, it's a little foreshadowing, it seems, right? Um, Thorin bore Orchrist, um, but died. Now, again, Thorin's relationship with Orchrist. See, that's the other thing, is that it's kind of, it seems, it's another thing that makes it seem a little strange to me. Um, trivia question. What did Thorin do with Orchrist? What did Thorin accomplish with Orchrist? Think about it carefully now. He gets Orchrist from the trolls. They get to Rivendell. Yeah, he didn't even fight in the Battle of Five Armies with it. Right? It immediately, he, they get captured by goblins and it gets taken away. Gandalf gets it back for him. Right? Um, so he doesn't even fight goblins with it in the mountains. Um, they, he helps cover the retreat. He and Gandalf draw their swords to help cover the retreat. Right? But I mean, like, with the great goblin, Gandalf's there. Glamdring plays a big role. Right? Um... But he snatches Orchrist back uh, and gives it back to Thorin. And then they run off, and then he draws it that one time. He draws it that one time with Gandalf when, they're f- when they are covering the retreat of the dwarves right before B- Bilbo falls down, right, and uh, wakes up near Gollum's lake, right? Um, and then they escape, and then they go to Bjorn, to the eagles, and then, you know... It, Wolves, eagles, Bjorn, Mirkwood, captured. He never does anything with it again. So Thorin actually, like, never does anything with Orcrist. Like, technically, he has it, right? And the Elven King gives it back to him. The Elven King took it from him when he was captured and only gives it back to him posthumously um, after his death. Um... That's it, JJ. You're exactly right. You nearly chopped off my head with Glamdring and Thorin was stabbing here and there and everywhere with Orchrist. That's it. That's the moment. That's the only thing Thorin ever does with Orchrist was fight goblins in that one passage that one time. Um, and that was, what is that, Dory, JJ, explaining why he dropped Bilbo, if I'm recalling correctly, right? Um, yeah, so I, yes, it's associated with Thorin and it's in Thorin's resting place, right? But it was like only barely Thorin's sword and he never did anything with it. Um, The mate of Orcris that now lay upon the breast of Thorin under the Lonely Mountain. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) Maybe doing nothing with it then losing it is what Frodo hopes to do with the ring, says Drowsnake. Uh, Maybe. Maybe, but probably not having it having it lie on his tomb posthumously. Um, but um, yeah, Thorin is dead. Died in battle. Died well in battle. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I made a lot about the facts. I think it's very important. 
seek the, for the sword that was broken, right? We talked about Elendil's sword and what is the what does Elendil's sword mean? Um, and uh, what it seems primarily to mean is the willingness of the king to step up and defy Sauron even at the risk of, and indeed in fact achieving his own death, um, in his own sacrificial death. Um, that seems to be what Aragorn is, like the path that Aragorn is set on, right? That he is going to follow in Elendil's footsteps, even if it need be to the very end, you know, to dying on the slopes of Mount Doom or whatever. Um, Thorin is another returning king who had a famous sword who died and died well. Um, it's not the same, right? Um, but Yeah. It's not the same. Why are we recalling his death? Why are we thinking, why are we being asked to think, not of the adventure, right? Had it said the maid of Orchrist that Thorin got from the trolls, that would be one thing, right? Kind of like what Frodo says to Bilbo when he sees Sting, the sword you used against the spiders, right? Um, you know, he remembers its role in the story, but that now lay upon the breast of Thorin under the Lonely Mountain is not remembering the story. I mean, it's mentioned in the story that Thorin gets it back posthumously, um, you know, at the very end, but it's not really a part of the story, not a part of Thorin's story, right? Um, where is it now, Orchrist? Oh, Yes, on Thorin's moldering corpse, under the Lonely Mountain. That's where it is. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It could recall sacrifice and victory, evil Dr. Cannon. I mean, certainly, again, Thorin died well. Um, and, not, and the return of Orchrist to him in death by the Elven King, right? Um is a sign of that good death, right? Um, it's sort of a testament to that good death. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to think. Now, this is all being associated with Gandalf, right? And I, I, I hear several of you are talking about, you know, foreshadowing of Gandalf's death, Thorin died and under the mountain and Gandalf is going to die under the mountain and all that kind of thing. Um, and that's true. We even have the dwarf connection with Moria. Again, looking ahead, you know, thinking where we're headed, but um I'm not sure. I'm not... I don't think I understand. I still feel like I don't understand it. Um, interesting, yeah. Bjorning is... Bjorning in exile is wondering, is it is it about... So Gandalf brought about the restoration of the Lonely Mountain, and now he'll bring about further restorations, hence the connection to Thorin and Okrist. Orcrist, yeah, so thinking about uh, Okrist. It's like combining Orcrist and Oakenshield, isn't it? Um, thinking about... 
because again, the the fact that Orchrist is lying upon Thorin's breast is a testimony not just to his valor or something, but is a testimony to his um, to the the peace and the un the union that was established, right? Um, the you know the later well, if not alliance, at least mutual tolerance, right, of the, um, uh, of the, the elves and the dwarves. Um, yeah, Bilbo's quest was to help restore a kingdom. Well, it turned out that way, Aspen, anyway. It's not the quest exactly that he, um, he set out on, but, um, yeah. I mean, it is possible, Aranas, that if he doesn't mention it, readers might wonder where it is. Yes, Yes, a little reminder. <clears throat> Orchrist is not in circulation. Don't go look, you know, this is Glamdring, but if you remember Glamdring and Orchrist, don't go looking for Orchrist. Um, yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, there seem to be a whole bunch of things that can, that kind of touch each other. The parallel that several of you are suggesting, um, between, you know, that I, as I was suggesting too, between Thorin as returning king and Aragorn as returning king, um, and uh, also about, you know, his death and Thorin's death and Gandalf's death, um, these things do seem to kind of overlay each other to some extent. Um, you know, even just, um, even just sort of antiquity, you know? Um, as I think Chris was mentioning, it's been 77 years, right? Um, Orchrist has been lying on the breast of Thorin for 77 years. Um, that is now, even Thorin's connection with Orchrist is now legendary, right? Part of, part of Erebor legend, part of Mirkwood legend as well, right? Um, uh, of course, like, you know, the whole connection of Glamdring back to Turgon is kind of a bigger deal, um, but um, not necessarily from the perspective of the hobbits, right? Um, seeing Gandalf in Glamdring, the maid of Orcarus that lay now upon the breast of Thorin under the Lonely Mountain, puts Gandalf in the context of that, not just of the story, not just of like, oh yeah, you used to hang out with Uncle Bilbo, right? We've seen Gandalf in that context before, um, but like a legendary figure, right? Um, Thorin, his tomb under the Lonely Mountain commemorating the reestablishment of Erebor and the new peace and alliance between the, the dwarves of Erebor and the men of Dale and the elves of Mirkwood, which was established through the Battle of the Five Armies. Um, that's now something that is already, that has passed into legend. It's been generations of men since then. Right. Um, you know, uh, Bard's grandson is now on the throne there in Dale. Um, and then here's here's Gandalf. Right. Gandalf is uh, um, Gandalf is. Revealed as a figure of legend. Right. And I think it's an interesting little data point there. Um, Gandalf is very familiar from the beginning. Right from when he shows up in preparation for the party, 
Um, and then we begin to get a little bit of distance from Gandalf when he leaves at the end of chapter one to the beginning of chapter two, right? And he keeps coming back and checking in on Frodo and then vanishing again for years at a time. It's clear he's up to something, right? There's like big stuff going on. He's part of a bigger story that we don't really know anything about, right? Um, Frodo doesn't know anything about what he's up to or what he's doing until he comes back and tells him. And then we get this wider view of Gandalf as he spells out the whole history and talks about his everything that he's done um, to confirm that this is the ring and every, and what they should do and everything, right? Um, and we're going to keep getting those moments with Gandalf leading up to the point where Pippin is going to be walking with Gandalf into the throne room at Minas Tirith and saying, who is Gandalf? When did he come into the world? What is Gandalf even? Right? When did he come into the world and when will he leave it again? Um, there will be those, you know, that moment finally when to Pippin, the penny finally drops, right? And he's like, whoa, Gandalf is actually a really big deal, right? Um, and I think I wonder if this is a point kind of on that spectrum as well. Um, there's this moment when the hobbits are seeing him girt with a sword and not just a sword, right? But an ancient sword, which is ancient and, and legendary and mythic in its own right with its connections to Gondolin and to Turgon, but also um, uh to the legend of Erebor and the, you know, like, look at what, not only just remember that he was in Bilbo's old stories, right, um, but think of what Gandalf has, like, as a reminder of some of the things that Gandalf has accomplished, right? When Gandalf sets off on adventures and brings people on adventures, look at the things that tend to happen, right? Um, and, uh, um, yeah, yeah. So I wonder if it's that, in that sense, kind of a contextualizing moment that is putting Gandalf in this wider mythic context, sort of realizing this kind of moment of realization, right? Like Gandalf, Gandalf is one of those legendary figures, right? Um, yes, at his girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring. Um, yeah, yeah. You're right, JJ. Gandalf doesn't have to choose between a sword and a walking stick. He can have them both. Yeah, that's right. Show, showing the hobbits how it's done. There. Eat, eat your heart out, Bilbo. Um, yeah, yeah. Cool. Um, okay, okay. Um, I, feel, I, I feel a little bit better about it now. Yeah, it's... Because it's clearly... At the end of the day, that's all contextualization of Gandalf, right? Um, and look at the two uneasy, un, un, not uneasy, uneven, that's what I meant to say, the two uneven halves of the sentence. Gandalf bore his staff, but girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, the mate of Orcrist that lay now upon the breast of Thorn under the lonely mountain. I mean, you see how uneven the two halves of that sentence are? Gandalf bore his staff. Simple, straightforward, Homely, familiar, that's Gandalf, right? Gandalf bore his staff. But girt at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, right? I mean, it's good. all of a sudden, whoop, completely different register, right? Um, not only very much longer, but completely different register. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. 
Um, yes, Nancy, that's exactly what I associate with the word girt as well. When someone is girt with a sword, it sounds like part of a knighting ceremony. Exactly. Now, like, we, don't, we don't see anyone gird it at his side, right? We don't get a ceremonial moment there. Um, but, um, but yeah, we didn't, uh, yeah, we didn't get that before. Um, that kind of, uh, that kind of concept there. Um, oh, that's interesting. Fourth Dauntless says, the last time we know for sure that Gandalf left Rivendell carrying Glamdring, he was going off to do battle with the Necromancer. Yeah, maybe he'll, uh, maybe he'll reprise that role here, uh, in this, uh, uh, in this, in this trip. Yes, true, true. Um, yeah, and Gildalo and I agree. Even looking at the syntactic structure there, it's not just the difference in like word choice. Um, it, you know, Gandalf bore his staff, but Gert at his side was the elven sword Glamdring, right? I mean, that it's yes, everything about that shifts in um, in style. Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, and Matt, you're right, Matt says, I, I mentioned this before, uh, but I want, I want to draw attention to the fact that for a group not trying to look like they're going off to war, all but two are bearing magic slash heirloom swords. Um, right, Leg Legolas and Gimli are the only two, because um, even the hobbits have their, uh, their, their barrow swords, which will turn out to be kind of a big deal. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's true, Fourth Dauntless. Maybe the white knife is significant, right? Uh, I, you know, maybe maybe that's why we get the color because there's something real special about it that we don't know. Um, but um, uh, but yeah, yeah, I, I I agree. It is interesting that uh, their weaponry, though you know they're not exactly armed to the teeth, but uh, it's fairly significant. Um, okay. Next paragraph. All were well furnished by Elrond with thick warm clothes, and they had jackets and cloaks lined with fur. Spare food and clothes and blankets and other needs were laden on a pony, none other than the poor beast that they had brought from Bree. We'll come back to Bill. We'll do that last phrase as a segue into the next slide, which is all about Bill. Um, but... Um, all were well furnished by Elrond with thick, warm clothes, and they had jackets and cloaks lined with fur. Um, spare food and clothes and blankets and other needs were laden on a pony. Um, yes, Erd, exactly. Remember that it's winter, um, and therefore they uh, have need of thick, warm clothes. Now, um, uh, Lester P. Stubbins, I see that you're here. Yeah, Lester was... Uh, emailing earlier, having trouble with uh, Discord, but I see you're here with us on Twitch. Congratulations on catching up. Um, but um, uh, I, um, I want yes, I can, I can and do. I can't always watch both successfully, but uh, I can see all of the sets of comments. Um, but um, anyway, Lester was bringing up a very excellent question, and I thought that I would just mention it. Um, there are a lot of things. There are a lot of ideas that people are really attached to, that are referred to, 
a couple times in Tolkien's works, but which in practice are not nearly as prominent or central to the story of the Lord of the Rings as they are beloved to the imaginations of readers, right? One of these things is hobbits and meals. Now, we're told about, you know, there are several references to, you know, like they had a frugal meal for hobbits, right? Again, we, we, we get a bunch of references like that, which remind us. But there's this obsession with hobbits and food among Tolkien fans, which, in my opinion, far outstrips the prominence of that theme. Um, they're associated with many things much more frequently than they are eating food. Um, second breakfast, good grief. You know, um, there's almost no reference to second breakfast. Uh, yeah, Peter Jackson's a big factor, right? Peter Jackson's certainly a big factor. Um, but, um, but yes, two juice, man, you're absolutely right. Uh, how silently, how quietly they, they, they can walk is referred to more often than how much they like, you know, six meals a day, um, or even, or certainly even, um, uh, second breakfast and Valora, yes, how hearty they are, I think is even more important. Um, the fact that they are tough and can do without at need, um, is attached to the idea of how much they love food and good things. And, um, seems to me to be the more important of those two things as far as the prominence of their themes in this in the story. Um, there's another one. I'm hesitating because I hate to even bring this up. Um, and that's the hobbits being barefoot. Hobbits never wearing shoes. My goodness. Tolkien fans like the idea of a hobbit wearing shoes under any circumstances is reacted to like blasphemy by many Tolkien fans. And like, I get it. Like, I get it. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really fun and it's lovely. Uh, and It is not insisted on by the books with anything vaguely resembling the fervor with which fans do it. Um, yeah, by the way, Hobbits having big feet, um, Hobbits having big feet is not even a thing. Um, that's just from the Peter Jackson films because he made them wear furry prosthetic feet. And so therefore their furry prosthetic feet which had to be glued onto their actual feet were bigger because their actual feet were inside them. Right. And so they ended up with these like clunky feet. Now I like, get, we're told that like Mr. Proudfoot had big feet. Yes. <laughs> like the fact that one Hobbit is described as having big feet, it does not mean all Hobbits have big feet. Like it's, I, I, you know, um, I, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just not, that's not a thing at all. Um, 
Yeah. Um, no, they don't have big feet. <laughs> big feet at all. They have furry feet. And they have leathery soles on the bottom of their feet. Which means that they went without shoes much of the time, right? Most of the time, even. However, um, there is one thing that leathery soles, which we are told that hobbit feet have leathery, tough, leathery soles, which is why they don't often wear shoes. Um, there is one thing that the, that leathery soles will not protect you from. Frostbite. I think it is almost certain that all four hobbits are booted when they leave Rivendell. I see no reason to think that they do not wear boots when they leave Rivendell. I do not think that they wore thick, warm clothes with jackets and cloaks lined with fur and bare feet to freeze their toes off in the snow. Now, here's the thing. Imagine, I don't blame Peter Jackson for doing what, I mean, again, like the big foot thing, what was he supposed to do? Like actually, you know, remove the feet of, you know, the four actors and prosthetically, you know, surgically replace, no, like he had to put feet on top of their feet so they're big feet. But, um, uh, but imagine, imagine if Peter Jackson had depicted the hobbits wearing boots. Imagine the storm of criticism that would have descended upon him if he'd shown that. So instead, he shows this, like, inexplicable and frank, frankly painful-looking um, spectacle of the hobbits treading through snow in their bare feet, right? Um, uh If anyone, if you had done that, if Jackson had put boots on the hobbits in the movie, um, Tolkien fans would have been up in arms. That is not what, um, that is not what Tolkien envisioned, right? Except, did Tolkien envision that? Did Tolkien envision? Hobbits not wearing shoes ever? Um, no. You've seen this, right? Here's Bilbo in the Eagle's Eyrie in one of Tolkien's Hobbit illustrations plainly wearing boots. Right there. There's a hobbit in boots. A booted hobbit in the mountains as conceived and drawn by Tolkien. Um, uh, there it is. Now, he explains this to a reader, a, a perceptive reader, who says, hey, why does Bilbo have boots? And do you remember what um, Tolkien's explanation of this was? Um, his explanation was, oh yeah, I forgot to mention, I didn't mention in the story, that Elrond gave him a pair of boots before he went up into the mountains. Right? Um, There it is, right? I, I do not, cannot imagine um, that uh, 
I do not cannot imagine that the four hobbits are leaving Rivendell in bare feet. I just, I don't. I, I think they're wearing boots. I really do. I think the evidence suggests this. I know this is horrible to suggest. And I know, like, this is going to rock the world. You know, like, that idea would rock the world of many people. Like, I know. I, and I'm not, I'm not trying to say you have to imagine it this way if you don't want to. It's it's fine. Tolkien doesn't describe it. Like he doesn't like describe their boot prints or something. Um, but um, I. But I don't think um, that he. Yeah. Now, Mad Violinist says, "Would I describe booted feet as the soft, scarce herd patter of hobbit feet?" Uh, first of all, Mad Violinist. I think it depends on who is walking in boots. But secondly, I would be perfectly. Um, I would be perfectly willing to remember they're going to we'll see the moment right when they're going to shed their warm garments um, in preparation for going into Moria. I would be totally amenable to the idea that they take off their boots at that point and go barefoot from then on. Um, I think that's um, uh and also, I agree, Trifle, I don't think that Hobbit boots need have hard soles and that soft leather boots could certainly make a patter uh, on a stone floor, uh, for sure. Um, but um, but yes, if they were wearing boots that they would have taken off their boots before entering Moria, where it was going to be warmer and there was not going to be snow, and then when they were going to emerge out of that, they were going to be in a warmer place from then on. That's why they were you know, getting rid of their warm clothes. Um, all of these things that are, um, uh, uh, that are being described here, right? The jackets and cloaks lined with fur and stuff are all going to end up in a pile, um, for the, you know, the watcher in the water to, I don't know what he's going to do with them. Um, you know, have a rummage sale or something. I don't know, but if I had to guess, I, again, if I had to guess, I would guess they're wearing boots and I would guess that their boots probably end up on that pile at that point. Um, but, um, but, um, anyway, I'm just, uh, I'm just, <laughs> yes, <laughs> sorry, I'm laughing because all the people in Discord now are, like, making, uh, 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 fake headlines mocking me like people have been mocking me for weeks on the internet now. Uh, exactly, exactly, that's, um, uh, so, anyhow, yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> right, Drosnake says he's now imagining the Watcher in the water wearing all eight boots on different tentacles. That I think could be very, could be very, could be very possible. Um, could be very possible. Um, anyway, um, yeah. So um, I'm just saying we we have to be careful with these things, you know. And it's so easy to for our imaginations to like seize on to particular things. And it just, it seems to me there are a number of things that I'm not saying they're not there. I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to like, say, I'm not like debunking the idea that hobbits don't usually wear shoes. Like clearly they don't wear shoes, but equally clearly Tolkien sometimes pictured them wearing shoes. Here's a picture that Tolkien drew of Bilbo wearing boots, right? So uh, we know that it happened, right? That Tolkien picturing that, I mean. Um, uh, and again, but if you were to dress Bilbo exactly like this, 
right? If you were to dress Bilbo in exactly those boots, uh, you know, and those pants and everything and, and put him on screen, people would scream bloody murder and be like, you have, you know, uh, uh, raped and murdered Tolkien's vision and dragged it through the mud. Um, I, I, we just have to be careful. I'm just saying caution is good. Um, and yeah, Farmer Maggot is totally going to wear boots, but I think as somebody else already said, um, uh, nobody's going to tell Farmer Maggot what to wear, right? I mean, come on. It's Farmer Maggot, for crying out loud. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, no, we, we know that um, people in the Marish sometimes wore boots, right? Uh, anyway, just just wanted to bring that up and confess my own uh, my own belief that they're wearing boots in the snow. Actually, I, I really suspect that they're wearing boots in the snow. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, right. JJ says the fact that the passage calls out the Marish folk for wearing boots shows both. That it isn't isn't the norm. Agreed. Like, we no need to make a point of it if uh, everybody wears boots all the time. And that they do it when needed. Yes. Like, when there's a need, like when you're in the marish, right? If you're, if you're walking somewhere, like, really, like, muddy, cold, and unpleasant, um, or um, you're a farmer, <laughs> right? I mean, I just can imagine lots of circumstances in which if I were, say, a pig farmer, in which I would not necessarily want to be barefoot all the time. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, exactly. Two Jewish man says, imagine mucking out the stable barefoot. I know, right? I mean, yikes. Um, you'd think there would be a much more robust foot washing um, uh, 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 custom in the Shire, right? Um, like foot washing at the door. Um, and Mad Violinist, yes, and someone else was pointing this out too earlier before, that they wore slippers in Tom Bombadil's house. Um, like inside, right? They Nevertheless, like it's a part of comfort and good hospitality for them to put slippers on their feet. Um, again, clearly the idea of footwear is not like alien and abhorrent to them, right? Um yeah, yeah. Um, but, um, yeah. Anyway, okay, okay. Um, <laughs> there, there we are. There we are. Okay. I'm glad. I just, I had to get that off my chest. <laughs> I, th I just think this is, uh, uh, and, and again, the reason, the reason that I think it's just, it's always worth just kind of checking yourself, if you know what I mean. Like it's, it's worth checking whether or not, um, you know, you might, um, sometimes you, your imagination, you can kind of like paint yourself in a corner, you know, if you're, if you're adhering too strongly or too universally to an idea, which is not necessary and you're assuming it all the way through and it's not necessarily being assumed. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think that um, it's just because I've had I. I mean, I, as you guys know, I spend a lot of time answering people's questions about Tolkien, and I've, I've had a lot of times when I've encountered folks who have been like, for whom this was a real struggle. They're like, I know hobbits never wear shoes, but 
the snow. Like, how do they not get frostbite? And I'm like, it's, they might have been wearing boots. It's okay. Like, that happens sometimes. And, like, it's, yeah, yeah. Sometimes when you just, if you are too blind and insisting on uh, things, then you end up, things which are not explicitly stated in the book, then you can paint your own imagination into a corner. Um, and uh, end up freaking out when somebody depicts an elf without long hair or something like that. Um, just just saying. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Drosnick says, next I'm going to tell me that Sam wasn't always wearing a hat. <sighs> Drosnick, here's what I want to know. Where do you think... Where do you think Sam loses his hat? As far as I know, there is not any evidence in the text at all. The Barrow, possibly. But would even the Barrowites dare to touch Sam's hat? Yeah, probably in the Barrow. Probably in the Barrow. I was going to say, if we say, you know, somewhere between the first night crossing the Shire and, you know, the day before his wedding, uh, when Rosie finally made him burn it, um, you know, somewhere presumably in between one of those two points, um, the Barrow is a pretty good... Um, Right, Portho says, if Sam was running around naked on the grass, except for his hat, that might have deserved a mention, even if only for sheer comedy. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> very. That's very possible. That's very possible. Um, I. I think the Barrow is most likely... Were they all wearing crowns? Because they had get headgear, right? Yeah, I think it's probably... Um, it's probably so. Um, and yeah, Bjorn in Exile, I, I, I agree. Um, uh, to to add, as Bjorn in Exile, bring us back to serious discussion here. Um, Seriously, I think Tolkien's spare personnel descriptions. Uh, yeah, exactly. Give wide room for imagination. That's exactly what his priority clearly was. Um, and if I could just dilate on that a little bit. Um, if you've read on fairy stories, Tolkien talks about this as one of the advantages of stories. That is, of, of told stories, of prose stories, uh, versus visual adaptations. When he's talking about theater specifically and he's talking about dramatic adaptations and he says one of the one of the problems one of the limitations there is that you have to you can say in a story the example that he uses is bread right he says in a story you can just say there was bread right and you don't have to say any more than that you have to say what but like what does that mean right but then when you go to do, he was thinking of the stage, but of course, obviously, it applies to TV or film as well. If you're going to do a film adaptation of a scene in which there's bread on the table, you have to, like, choose what bread. What does it look like? What kind of bread? Brown bread? White bread? You know, black bread? Uh, crusty? Non-crusty? You know, leavened or unleavened? Like, you have to make all these choices, right? You have to decide. There has to be, like, a bread there. 
and it has different implications and different associations, right? I mean, you're, you're kind of, you're saying something there, you know, you're, you're locking it in, in a particular, and it may be a big, may not be a big deal. It may seem like not a big deal, it may be a bigger deal than you think it is. But, um, but in any case, in a story, the point is in a story, you're free. And more importantly, you can leave the reader free, right? So you can just say bread and then the reader is free to imagine whatever kind of bread they want to imagine, right? Whatever seems to fit the scene to them. And it's okay. Um, uh, it's okay to leave that free to the reader's imagination. And you're absolutely right that Tolkien does that. And he seems to me to go quite out of his way to do that with characters and their personal descriptions. We get very little about what they look like. A couple things here and there that get kind of dropped or hinted at. And I agree with the latter part of your statement as well, um, Bjorning, that um, as a literary bonus, when he does describe characters like Boromir's hair at the beginning of the council, like Gandalf's sword just now, it tells us something important about them. Yes, that, and which is why I was spent so long on the white knife last time. Because again, like, he didn't have to tell us that, right? And it's not part of the routine thing that he does, is to tell us the color of people's weapons, right? So that that's, seems to that was important enough for him to not leave us free to imagine whatever color knife we wanted to imagine for Legolas. We're supposed to imagine that his knife is white for reasons, right? Um, so yeah, that's why that's exactly why I felt that that was important. Um, but um, uh, but uh, but yeah, it's it's um, right. Almeria says it's still an effective technique to leave some drama off camera for that very reason. Because you want to leave people to imagine it themselves instead of showing them everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but um, but I agree. Uh, there's a reason. I, I believe that that is the reason that Tolkien does not give more details than he does. Um, but, you know, we have to... Um, uh, but it's important for us to acknowledge when our own imagination is acting. And again, our imagination's free to act. Like, there's nothing wrong. And there's nothing wrong with you people loving the idea of the barefoot hobbits and finding, like, barefootedness to be, like, an absolutely essential element of hobbitness in their imagination. Like, that's okay. You just have to remember that, you know, there is, uh, there is some flexibility here. Um... Exactly. Okay. Yes. So Sam does have a circlet. So I do think his hat's gone in the barrow. I think we can be fairly confident of that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Um, okay. Last point we'll make, and then we'll stop for tonight. Um, Yeah, yeah. And oh, Lester, that's a really important... Lester P. Stubbins, that's a, a really important thing. She says, I feel lucky that I first read The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings back in the 60s before there were any adaptations or illustrations other than Tolkien's. I still have my original mental pictures, but it's hard to hold on to them. Um, yeah, it can be. It can be. Um, I'm going to talk about this. I don't know if we'll get to it tomorrow, but I'm going to talk about this in Other Minds and Hands when we talk about adaptation. Because um, that's been very much something that's on my mind. Um, and 
low key, it's one of the things I'm most excited about. Um, about the Amazon show is to complicate the modern things. Um, I like the idea. I hope the show succeeds well enough that the visual imagination of Middle Earth through the Amazon show is able to compete with Jackson's. Um, the more monolithic that one visual adaptation was, um, the less easy it is to retain, I think, uh, Lester, that um, I feel my own imagination is going to be made the freer when I, like... I never really had this problem, I think, much myself, but I think it's mostly just because I don't have a very visual imagination in the first place. Um, people often were complaining about their mental pictures of Aragorn or Frodo being tied now to Viggo Mortensen and uh, Elijah Wood. I never had that problem so much, but in part that's just because I'm such an audio audio person. I don't do as much visual imagination when I'm reading, but... Um, uh, but uh, I never had a huge struggle with it, but I know many people have, you know, have said like, you know, I now like when, it, when I like the those moments, right, the visuals from the Peter Jackson films have like infected my imagination now of the books. And that's a, that's a real issue. Um, I look forward to seeing that kind of complicated, you know, um, kind of complicated by more um, more versions and therefore in some ways, I feel like that will restore a certain freedom uh, in some way. You know what I mean? Anyway, um, we'll um, we'll see. Um, okay. Uh, last point. Um, and I'm sorry, I've already forgotten who said it. Um, <clears throat> but... Um, uh, somebody a while back was pointing out that all were well furnished by Elrond with thick warm clothes. Um, the sort of role that this place is Elrond in, right? This is like the last piece of hospitality or no, this is the penultimate piece of hospitality from Elrond. The Mirovor will be the final piece of hospitality, but for now, the penultimate piece of hospitality that we're getting from Elrond um, is this furnishing uh, this furnishing of thick, warm clothes, jackets and cloaks. They've had months, actually, to, like, tailor, you know, traveling clothes uh, for uh, the company. Um, and um, I, I, I could easily believe uh, that they uh, that they mentioned it. Um, is this the only time jackets are mentioned? Well, Tom Bombadil is a jacket. Um, and talks about jackets all the time. Not only his own jacket, which of course he talks about all the time, um, but he even uses the word in uh, about the weather, right? The weather will change as quick as Tom can change his jacket. Um, I can't remember anybody else having a jacket other than Tom Bombadil. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um... Anyway, so yeah, this is uh, Jackie. I agree. This is this is this is this is thoughtful. This is generous, and it is something. Um, it's 
it's a little counterintuitive. Well, not, not exactly counterintuitive. That's not quite right. But um, on the one hand, there's something a little bit kingly about this, right? The giving of gifts and the providing of, the, you know, the, the, the provisioning of them for their journey. He's, he's supplying them um, like a lord in some ways, right? Um, but what would you normally, like, if you go into, like, Beowulf mode... Right. What would you expect the liege lord to be distributing to people as they're departing his home? Honored guests departing his home on a, a dangerous quest for his good. Right. Well, yeah, you'd give him you'd give him rings. But apart from that, it's awkward under the circumstances. That's right out. Right. Um uh, so you 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 could you'd, you you you'd be a ring giver, but but apart from that awkward fact, arms and armor is what you would normally be giving, right? That's that's what that that those would get the headlines, right? You'd be giving out ancestral swords and that kind of thing, and maybe Gandalf kind of got one, or at least he got his loner back, right? <laughs> exactly, rings would be a gift in bad taste under the circumstances, Matt. You're right, um, but um, anyway, so like it, it, arms and armor. Right would be typical, and it's interesting to me. Um, this is what I was talking about when I what, what I was referring to as counterintuitive. It's not exactly counterintuitive, but um, we've already gotten all their weapons, right? All the things which, like, you know, we would might expect them to receive, but they're not getting any of that. Instead, he's just giving out, um, you know, uh, like long underwear and fur-lined cloaks, right? Um, uh, very practical, right? Much more practical than than Hrothgar's gifts, of course. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, he uh, he's he's. It's well, they're much more homely gifts, aren't they? Um, which I suppose is relevant under the circumstances. Perhaps a few red silk handkerchiefs, storward exactly right. That's that uh, maybe maybe somebody got a red silk handkerchief, um, but. Um, yeah, yeah. Green Great Dragon, you're right that uh, Elrond's mother-in-law is totally going to one-up him in terms of gift-giving. Uh, you know, here's how it's done, boy. <laughs> right? <laughs> Let's talk guest gifts here, right? Oh, wait, excuse me, but Green Great Dragon, don't you mean Celeborn, who is a, a, a mighty lord and very wise and the giver of great gifts? It's, it's, it's Celeborn you mean to credit, right, with the gifts to... Uh, the party, obviously, um, but um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Kurtzimus says that the might of Elrond is in textiles, <laughs> apparently, and not in arms and armor. Right? Yes, uh, the, the 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 might of Elrond is is not in weapons. Boromir has that on good authority, right? So uh, it's hardly a surprise. But woolens apparently are right up his alley. So there you go. Um, <laughs> anyway. Oh, I can't wait to get to the Galadriel passages, uh, for the Celeborn passages, I mean to say. Uh, Lord Celeborn, you know. Um, <laughs> so, yes, there we are. Um, excellent. We will, next time, uh, next week, uh, we will talk about Bill the Pony uh, being brought from Bree. Um, so uh, uh, that'll be fun. I'm going to let everybody go. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing very badly staying on time recently. Uh, and I, I, I got to do better. All right. 
thank you everybody for joining me. It's field trip time. Um, uh, thanks. Uh, for that. Well, I, we, we will be back. I will be back next week. I should be back for I think I, I think I'll be back for the rest of the Tuesdays of March. Um, I am traveling several weekends in a row, but I think Tuesdays should be safe. Hopefully, unless something quite unexpected happens um, on my journeying. Um, but uh, but anyway, we'll certainly be here next week and plan for that. Uh, so thanks, everybody. And let us head off to our field trip. Uh, and Valori, you are back, which is great. So um, uh, good to have you again. Good to be back. Yeah, all right. What was that? I missed you guys so much. Yeah, yeah. I'm glad you're feeling better. Yeah, yeah. Nah, five-year-olds bringing nuclear viruses home from whatever petri dish kindergarten she's at. Exactly. It's hard having young children. Um, I have to admit, I don't miss the phase of parenthood, of getting every single illness, you know, uh, in the county coming through my house every couple of weeks. So. yeah. I was so excited when she was going to get her first Valentine's Day project, you know, in class. And I'm just like, oh, my kids never seem to make Valentine's Day for some reason. And then she got the virus. I'm like, oh, I remember why now. <laughs> That's right. There's a reason why you don't normally go to those parties. Already sick by then. Okay. So yeah. we're going to head back to uh, Echad Mirabel. Okay. Where I think we were going to start. So we had gotten through most of the layout of Mirabel by okay. last time. Um, and decided that it wasn't much. <laughs> There's really not much there. Um, okay, so all right, well, we're back up in the... Huh. Hmm. This balcony was totally I'd... always here, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. I just don't remember the little Arnavo ironwork above the doorway. No. Did I just always happen to be facing in the other direction or something and never it notice this balcony? Yes. Dark. Huh. Cuz I totally did. Cuz you know what? We don't have hmm. to even have to go anywhere because right from here we can see just what I wanted to see. Oh, okay. At least to start with. And that's yeah. this is the cuz the, across the river. We didn't get to see across the river. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Okay, so one conclusion that I was thinking of for last time was oh. that um, I'm not convinced that there are very many, there were very many Noldor that lived here, right? Um, hmm. I mean, on the one hand, we know that, you know, this place, Eregion, was one of the greatest, you know, sort of settlements of the Noldor um, in you know, post-First Age in Middle-earth. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there were thousands of them living here, you know? Um, and uh, it seems to me... Nation statistics were... Right, right. I mean, it, it seems to me that the way that they've depicted Echad Mirabel here, it has, you know the casual party facilities. It has what looks like, you know, um, uh, facilities for guests in various places, but we've seen very few places that could have been homes. And so I think across what we're seeing across the river here, that, 
that's where the forges were, right? Over there? Yeah, I think so, yeah. So that's that's the heart. That's where Celebrimbor presumably lived. Um, what we can see here, and I'm loving this view. How did I not ever see this view before? Because, yeah, look, I, I right from here, we can turn over this way and see the library on the hill, right? Mm-hmm. So cool. we can see the library. whole library, and daylight's a beautiful thing. How much daylight do we have? Oh, it's noon. Look at this. We're in great shape today. Um, yeah, so we've got the Gilgoad Library, right? The Gilgoad Memorial Library up on the hill up there. Uh, and then we have, right, we have the forges down. Wait, that's the school on the hill? I thought that was the library. That's the school? Boy, I missed that. Wow, cool. Wasn't the one anyway. Um, uh, Those have libraries. Yeah. Okay, the library's down by the river. Where? Okay. Is it that thing across from us? Oh, that on the other side of the fort. Uh huh. So the other side of the fort just goes to the library. So that's oh, the yeah, library that was over the there. bridge that goes into the water now. Yeah. We've been up there. There was yeah. no way to get it in, though. Okay. Okay, so that's the library down there. You can see everything from this balcony. This is the best. Yeah. I never would have had to walk around at all. Well, no, that's not true. I, I needed to get well, the way of the land. There's a bunch of dumps but... behind the hill, too. Which way? Uh, let me think. Southwest. Facing southwest. See, there's uh, that skeleton of domes like, like right where I'm pointing. Down by the river? Yeah, uh, that, that way, across from us. Oh, I see. On the other side of the hill. Right. Right. Yeah, so it does look like the sort of complex on the other side of the river, like so where we get this second big bridge. We got the first big bridge crossing in from the road to Moria, right? Mm-hmm. And it went right past the, um, you know, the four-star hotel and the health spa and, you know, a bunch of a bunch of stuff. Um, and then it eventually led to that road, eventually leads around if you don't go up the hill to the party spots um, and function centers, but just stay on the ground level. It brings you around to this second bridge, um, which leads across to the center of things, and the forges over there. Um, so I think that they... This seems to me, I guess, where all of the Noldor who lived here probably lived. Yep. Right? I think so. Yep. And you're right. We can see right across from us there um, evidence that that part of the city extends quite a bit off towards the west there, or sort of uh, west by southwest over there um, yeah. on the other well, side of I that hill. I can imagine the forges would be fun to live in in summer. Right. Well, maybe not. But yeah, yeah, I think that Celebrimbor and his folks must have actually dwelt in this. And if we look at the buildings from here, Right, we've got the three major buildings. We've got the forges down there on the other mm-hmm. side of the bridge. We've got the yep. library set into the hill over there. And mm-hmm. we've got the school up on the hill 
up there. Yeah. If I'm getting all these things right now. Um, sure. So of these, the school looks like the largest single building. Um, because even the forges down here, that's by far the fanciest building. Look how cathedral-esque it looks, right? With yeah, those vaulted roofs and the gilt. Yeah, the gilt ceiling. It does. It's very. Um, we'll see if we can see any because I think we can. We can, can we go in there? No, it's an end. Well, we we can go in there as part of the end. Cap oh, the instance, right? Story. Yeah, it's a story instance for okay. um, back when level cap was at fifty. Right. Right. Um, okay. What do you make of those really tall forked columns? Chimneys? I mean, it's a forge, right? Right. Um, yeah. We've seen chimneys that kind of look like that in the bad guys' realms. Yeah. But, right. The, you mean like the wraith factories, right? Mm-hmm. The, yeah. Um, Phylactery factories. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Um, I don't know. I don't think they are. Well, I mean, they could be, but they don't look like it. They look solid at the top. I don't see. I don't see spouts there. Um, they look open at the end, but I'm not sure. It looks like pointy bits, and then broken arches that were in between them. Yeah, I can kind of see arches. To me, they kind of look like uh, what, like a like a twig about to bud or something. Right. Yeah. No, they have that look. That's the and, else, though. Just everything organic. Yeah. Yeah. That they were very kind of tree-ish. I can easily imagine that. And I wonder if there was a more kind of sort of delicate stonework in between them, which is why none of it survived. Yeah, it's all yeah, crumbled. <laughs> you see all the, but, the some of the fallen yeah. masonry and lots of boulders all over the place. If we if we go with the idea that those are were arches, and it looks like there's a path, right? Like there's a road that goes yeah. that starts at the forge, and goes back through the trees towards that big dome that you were noticing. Mm -hmm. um, over here on the side. Um, yeah. Could be the living quarters for the people who work at the forge. Yes. Also, looking at the side of that cliff over there, mm -hmm. um, the one that we can see right in front of the forge. With the archways? With the archways, yeah, it makes me wonder if if we went down closer in, would those be doors? Like, is it? Did they live inside the hill there as well? <laughs> How very dwarven of them. Well, you know, they're an old door. They don't mind. Well, yeah. Their uh, underground. Yeah, yeah, they could live underground. Um, well, it does make me wonder now if this little sort of. The, the miniature valley around the forge head was actually uh, uh, encased at some point uh, in walls and the roof. Right. Yeah, I wonder. 
I wonder. I mean, that little like, uh, you know, box canyon that they made, that little courtyard that's yeah. there, which makes me wonder if that's even artificial. You know, if that was carved out, maybe they found it there and just kind of built around it. Also, I'm having a hard time understanding the relationship between the gold-roofed forges and the rock that seems to be growing up out of the middle of it. Uh, I don't know. We're right next to a bunch of hills. There could be mudslides, landslides. Could be, though it didn't wipe out the whole thing. It just, so I mean, because we see the, we see the, oh, wow. the, gilt, the gilt roof fore and aft yeah. of that big boulder, right? Yep. Um, oh, sorry, JJ was just correcting me that all elves are only about trees and speaking very slowly, having long hair and being vegan. Um, that's right. I'd forgotten. Sorry. I did that's forget right. myself we were... there for a moment. Yeah. About, uh, elves. Yes, you're right. Um, right okay. I almost are. jumped off the cliff, but I didn't quite. So ah. that's good. Um, yeah, not advised. Yeah. Not advised. Not advised. Um, yeah. So I wonder which of these places was Anatar's favorite place to hang out. It would be really one fun. with his picture in it. Yeah, you'd think, right? Um, I'm gonna assume. I'm gonna assume that um, this place was pretty well established before Anatar moved in. That is to say, I don't think that we sh can necessarily believe that Anatar had a significant influence on the uh, uh, on the construction of this place. Um, but I think he would have you know it would be a fun theory. The big domey building over there. See, but he didn't assert himself here. In this, I mean, it's not, he didn't have an effect yeah, no, like he, he did in Numenor or something. He didn't assert himself. Yeah, yeah, he insinuated himself. He would have been giving, given rooms and would have liked it, right? Um, mm -hmm. He was still on a covert mission all the way through and wasn't bringing, wasn't directly trying to glorify himself yet. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so oh, I just think... like where was his favorite place to hang out without right. when he was done with the forges, that's all. Hotel, maybe the marketplace, you know, all the avarice and lucre. Um I bet he had his own carol in the library down there underground. Oh yeah. Deep underground. I think that's where I think that's where he hung out. Black archives. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'll um, take it. Yeah, that's what I think. I think he would have liked hanging out at the forges themselves, JJ, as well. But see, like, he couldn't be alone there, right? I mean, occasionally you just have to let slip, like, the occasional evil monologue. And he's smart en a smart <laughs> enough villain to, like, get, have some quiet time and be alone when he feels the urge, right? So I think. Uh, Your villainous asides. Exactly. Exactly. I think he would have had a, uh, you know, secret underground study space where he could have done that kind of thing. 
um, you know, for exposition for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. Al, Al Maria, I like that theory, uh, that he loved the school, acting like he was wise and teaching new schools of thought. Yes, yes. Um, subversive subversive uh, ideas that he could teach at the school. I bet you he would and have been about that. Elf-splaining to annoy everybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of elf-splaining, certainly, certainly. Yeah, okay. Well, so we can go into the... So the good news is we can go into there into the forges but the bad news is we have to do all 14 books of uh the epic quest in order to do that so we probably can't do that um at least i can't do that but uh i think what what was my plan i had a plan didn't i have a plan i got a plan what was my plan that next time angle of methethal yeah i think so i think that's where we were gonna head back next time um yeah and explore the new area because I think we're pretty much done with this region. Um, and uh, I mean, there's more obviously, but it's all book related and we're waiting till we get in the book to do that. Mm. But yeah, I think we could head, um, we could head back up. We did not look at the enemy camps just south of here, JJ. We did not do that. But I think, as I recall, aren't they mostly done lendings and half-orcs? Right? These are like the extended armies of Saruman on the move. Right? Um, I think yeah. we've seen those. Yeah, so I think sort of the role that those have in the in the sort of story of the region, I think, obviously much more modern, needless to say, than the ruins that we're looking at here. But, um... um yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Oh, and there are a handful, a handful of Angmarim as well. Right, okay. okay. I think most Makes of the sense. Angmarim are for leftovers from the Troll Shago. Right, right. Okay, okay. All right, well, yeah, maybe we'll go up to the Troll Shaws next and we'll, um, we'll work our way through the new area, see what there is to be seen up there. Um, that'll be interesting. And then, who knows? Maybe we'll be actually catching up with the book will catch up with us here uh, in Eregion. Um If not, there's still plenty of stuff to see that I haven't seen. So uh, so we'll see what we can find. All right. But for now, um, we sh I shall let everybody go. Not too horribly late. Uh, we did get to see sort of the last of things, which and this what a perfect vantage. I was going to go down and stand next to the bridge or like get on the front side of the bridge and kind of try to peek around to see. But this is by far the best view of the forges and the layout here. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that finally on the last day I noticed this convenient balcony. Thanks, everybody. And I will see everybody next week. Good night, everybody. Thanks. <laughs>